The American Council of Blind Lions, ACBL, is the affiliate that roars, and that's no lion. ACBL holds monthly conference calls and ACB convention events that help people who are blind or visually impaired become more involved in local Lions Clubs. Find out more. Call 502-897-1472 or email lions.acb at gmail.com. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening and welcome to Tuesday Topics. And uh, thank you, Mike Duke from Mississippi. It's good to hear your voice again. And um, on Tuesday Topics tonight, we have kind of a double feature. We'll see how it all works. And we have the... um, the usual folks with us this evening, Mr. Brian Charleston is here. Hello, Brian. Hello, Brian. Uh, Paul. Yes. Hi there. Exactly. Yeah, we, we, we both came in as, as not each other, but as the same person. I'll let you guess who that was. Um, and, and a lot of you would guess wrong. Uh, yeah, anyway. Certainly so. So, <laughs> and who else do we have here? Our usual crew of, of criminals? We we do we have uh, we have Rick Morin who will be hand raising Mr. Rick hello hello how are you guys we are well thank you and we we also have Marianne Grignon who is uh, who is a, a a an intern if you like <laughs> on Tuesday topic but she also has the ability to talk and and be a part of the program at any point that she wants to hey Marianne hello Paul thank you. Yep, and and of course we have Mr. Larry Gassman, who is our streamer. It's interesting. I wonder how what a streamer looks like. Is it is it a sort of a long, thin piece of paper? Uh, my answer is unprintable. Mean the icon. <laughs> I know what streamers <laughs> used to, or streamers were on a on a uh, bicycle. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah there were there were those. Things those- those are the on. things on the handlebars, right? Yes. Handlebars, yeah. Used to yeah. come out of the tips of the handlebars. See? Yeah. I thought see, that was I did, a girl's and I didn't, bike. And I didn't, I didn't know, know that. I, yeah, I see. Yeah. You, what well, did you see, say, Brian? What kind of bike were you on? A girl's bike. Uh, did, you have oh, a bana- said, did, did you have a banana seat? Remember banana seat? I did. I, I had banana seat, uh, what they called, um, what they called those, ape hanger, you know, or butterfly handlebars. Yeah. And nice. it's red, and it had no gears. By God, you earned every no, every, every turn of the wheel. Step you, you took. Were you one of the kids who used to put baseball cards in your spokes? Never did. Oh, we did Never that. Did. It made oh, a great oh, sound. I did that. Terrific sound. Just keep in mind that I was blind for about six months when I got to ride my first bicycle. Nice. So I was learning it in a rather different way. My brothers used to ride their bicycles in front of me singing cigarette commercials so that they would act as my audio uh, indicators of where it was safe for me to ride behind and between them. We just rode bikes. Uh, We just rode. I I managed to discommode my brother because we had tandem bikes. We had oh, two-wheel cool. bikes, and we just rode them, and people would say, Hey, will yeah. you guys tell those blind people to stop riding through the garden? <laughs> <laughs> it truly happened several times. So I, I have no doubt. Our first the most unconventional <laughs> beginning of 
a Tuesday topic show. Well, if people had only heard the warm up, <laughs> the warm up was better. <laughs> <laughs> they would really think it's off the wall. So this evening. <laughs> so anyway, Paul, it's not going to get any better, Paul. I know you think, Paul, that we can fix all this in editing, okay? But right now we're live. So go <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Tonight we are going to be spending at least the first little while talking about the ADA, partly because people said we should, uh, and, and partly because I think there are some things about the ADA that it's, that it's worth talking about. Um, the, the people who said we should said we should because we, we ought to be grateful for the ADA. Um, and, and I'm inclined to agree with that, but I think not for some of the same reasons as other people think we ought to be grateful for the ADA. Uh, I am not um, grateful for the ADA because of all the wonderful things that blind people got out of the ADA, because I don't think there were a huge number of things that we got out of the ADA. Um, I don't know where you stand, Brian, on the on the ADA. Do you think blind people got a lot? It's not so much the ADA, but how it has been or hasn't been fully implemented. 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 Yeah. Implemented. Implem yeah. I don't know. Implemented. That's, that's, sounds like a good combination. I yeah. Um, I think. I think it has been implemented in some ways that have benefited people who are blind. I, I would agree with that. And, and potentially, um, next year, we may gain an awful lot from the ADA um, because one of the things that, that we should take note of when we're talking about the ADA is that the um, Biden administration has just announced that it is their intent to finally deal with the question of the internet and the ADA uh, next year. And um, there have been some messages around that, that strongly urge the Biden administration to actually complete their work um, before the end of this administration on that issue. Um, so that's actually something we can celebrate with the ADA. I think it's kind of exciting. Um, when uh, I've talked uh, uh, just before the program started about Brian being at my house um, 12 or 13 years ago. And, and the reason that he was there was uh, we were spending a weekend working on um, trying to design um, what our testimony would look like with regard to the, um, the attempt that was proposed to amend the ADA way back in 2009, 2010, Brian. Yeah, about then. And um, and we 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 spent a weekend writing stuff that that turned out to be pretty useless for the last twelve years or thirteen years. Um, so we're hoping that suddenly it will get better. So well, and and we 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 hope that. The only good thing that came out of that weekend was some cookies. That's yes, exactly. Though the cookies so, were very good. <laughs> so I, I want to make it clear that I draw a big line between the ADA, the regulations implementing the ADA, and the court 
reviews of the regulations uh, implementing the ADA. I think the ADA had a lot of good things for people with disabilities in general and people with specific disabilities specifically. And there were certainly some omissions that as a result of compromise and the speed at which it all happened, didn't find their way into it. Uh, I point directly at the lack of requirement that restaurant menus be accessible, but rather that we would have to accept having some alternate uh, accommodation to our need to read a uh, menu by something like asking the waitress or waiter to read you the menu, uh, that that was an accommodation. But it wasn't an accommodation to have a wheelchair user come in through anything other than the front door, uh, even though that would be a radically more expensive moderate uh, moderation. Yeah. Motivation. I can't even say these words yeah. anymore. They all begin yeah. with the same letter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Modification is what Modification, you're trying to get Yes. There yeah. you go. So there were certainly compromises throughout sure. the ADA like that, some of which I find incredibly annoying and can't understand why somebody would have been against it in the first place, since it was and is, and even more so today, readily achievable. But nonetheless, compromises were made. And, and so it's not a perfect document, no. but it's a heck of a lot better than the lack of any kind of such document prior to it. You know, certainly the ADA uh, under Title IV, which which created um, which created uh, in, interpreting um, uh, via telephone for for deaf folks, made a huge difference in their lives. And there were there were some other components that made huge differences for folks um, with other disabilities. Um, but I, I think you're right to, to draw those distinctions, um, Brian, between, between the law itself and the regulations and the court decisions that have implemented the regulations. Because even though there were courts that tried to draw back from the intent of the ADA, there, was, there were usually either other court decisions or, in fact, legislation um, that reiterated that Congress meant what it said about... Um, about valuing folks with disabilities and and about uh, and about making inclusion real if if they could, um, and so I think you're perfectly correct to point that out. And I would argue that one of the things we've gained from the ADA um, may not be quite as prevalent now as it was, but one of the requirements of the ADA, particularly under Title II, was that. Entities, that is, state and local governments, should implement a pretty broad range of training activities. Um, and I think those training activities made a huge difference in terms of people's understanding of folks with disabilities. And that certainly included folks who were blind or, or had low vision. And I think that, particularly under Title II as well, um, there, was a, there, were, there was a pretty fair effort made that for the most part, I think, continues um, to provide auxiliary aids and services in appropriate ways to those who are involved with state and local government. We certainly haven't gone as far as we could. Uh, I would argue that, for example, 
when there are county operated gyms, um, the fitness equipment in those gyms ought to be accessible. And I'm not sure we've gotten to that point yet. Uh, I think we should. And part of the reason we haven't gotten to that point is there, there is the way that we've approached making changes to the ADA, which is, which is one tiny step at a time, uh, which is interesting. Um, for, well, me, for me, yes. it's also a matter of, you know, the ADA is a national thing, but the court's involvement, and Chris, I see you have a raised hand, and we're going to recognize yep. you in just a moment. Um, but each of the, well, again, it's not being applied uniformly. It all depends on who's uh, claimed a given activity was not specifically mentioned and what district you're in. I happen to be in a district that's been very pro-rod interpretation of the ADA. Uh, however, there are certainly districts where they've drawn the absolute most narrow definition of the ADA. And I would imagine that when our friend Chris comes here, he's going to tell us a bit more about that legal, legal stuff between the idea and the principle of the ADA and its actual uh, right. traversing our nation's court system. And I lived in, in a city that, that was probably the model um, for the first 10 years after the ADA was started and has gone from being a model to, to, to being almost a disgrace um, in terms of the way it's implementing ADA. And I'm talking not about the state of Florida, though it has some issues as well, um, but I'm talking about the, the county of Miami-Dade which is which is where I lived, and um, and and which um, has essentially fired most of the people it had hired um, to implement the ADA in various departments. Um, Mr. Rick, can can we recognize Chris Bell and see what he would like to tell us? He's already, I'm already here. Yeah. Hey, Chris. There's the man. Good evening, hey, gentlemen. So, boy, I, there's so many things I could say. Um, First of all, I, I just want to correct one thing that you said at the top, um, uh, Paul, and that was that the Justice Department's proposed rulemaking on the Internet is limited to Title II. It does not include Title III. Oh, that's too so, bad. I didn't know so that. It's only, so it's only going to be state and local governments. And I think the reason for that and I, I don't, I haven't talked to many of justice, but I think the reason for that is that's the strongest uh, constitutional connection. Um, and it's stronger because of the state and local government uh, piece. And it's, it's, it's less problematic than trying to do it on retail stores and other places under Title mm -hmm. III is what it comes down to. Because That's, you have base, basic right. constitutional rights to petition your government uh, to get government services when they're offered, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and they're like in court systems and whatnot. So it's a much stronger uh, place to start for Internet access. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, I think, you know, you wouldn't think there was even work to do because 
you know, there was a time, especially when the ADA first came out, that that <clears throat> most state and local governments uh, assumed that um, they had some obligations under the ADA to create accessible websites and that kind of thing. Um, but we've certainly gone far from that. Um, in Florida, the Florida Council of the Blind has, in fact, gone so far as to send a letter to the Department of Justice with regard to the unwillingness of the state um, to, um, to to make its uh, its its internet elements accessible, um, and and those were those were internet state government elements, and we haven't we haven't taken them to court, but we've we've done everything short of that, including filing a complaint with DOJ, which they've accepted. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to say is I don't think we should judge the Americans with Disabilities Act on to a higher standard than we apply to other federal civil rights laws that were passed earlier. I mean, for example, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, um, you know, obviously it has not eliminated either sex discrimination or racial discrimination. Um, and th there's only so much that laws themselves can do, even if they're fully enforced. And no federal civil rights law is fully enforced because the Congress never appropriates enough money for the enforcement agencies to do all that they otherwise would have the authority to do. Um, and that's partly why in uh, the 1990 Civil Rights Act was passed that created damages uh, for uh, uh, people that win employment discrimination claims because they wanted to incentivize private attorneys that weren't all that interested in in just you know getting back pay and filing for their attorneys fees and and so there's been a recognition that Congress hasn't done enough and you know that's true for special ed too I mean so um, this is not a a problem unique to the ADA. No, I agree. It's not a problem equal to the ADA, but. Um, I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with the idea that I shouldn't hold hold the implementation of the ADA to a higher standard. I'd like to hold them all to a higher standard. And that means that I, as an advocate, need to do exactly what you were saying, Chris, and that is advocate with my elected representatives to fund enforcement. They, you know, it's really, it's much easier to pass a law than it is to implement the law. And implementation Absolutely. is not just the, the propagation of rules, it's enforcing the rules, creating a system where that is even possible. What good is a law that says uh, it's illegal to murder somebody if there's not police to, to uh, track you down if you do, and that there isn't a system by which to discourage that behavior? Uh, so, you know. Uh, I would like to hold the ADA to a high standard and the Civil Rights Act as well. One of the things I'd love to ask you, Chris, is with the new creation of an, a pretty restricted view of uh, the authority given by Congress to agencies uh, to interpret their scope. Do you really think that uh, 
this, even if the DOJ publishes the rule and the Biden administration supports it, do you expect many, many entities to challenge the rights or the right of the DOJ to pursue this because it's not specifically mentioned in the ADA itself, that is web accessibility? Absolutely. I think that will happen. And and I, I can't obviously predict what the Supreme Court will do, but I that's a guaranteed, uh, I think, uh, effort will be to attack those regulations on that basis. Absolutely. And, and again, as we've seen, uh, and it's not just at the Supreme Court level, it's at virtually every level in the U.S. judicial system has become quite, uh, I might be using the wrong term, uh, constructionist. If it didn't say it, then you can't interpret that it meant it kind of right. approach. But the ADA has one thing going for it that other civil rights laws don't have, and that is it is incredibly specific. And it is incredibly specific because, in effect, it took the 504 uh, regulations that were initially promulgated by HEW in 1977 and mm-hmm. threw them into a statute. So um, when, when uh, a, a conservative justice says, well, um, you know, this isn't specific enough. There's a lot in the ADA that's extremely specific. So it says, you know, every new bus purchased after whatever the date was has to be lift equipped. You can't make it any more specific than that. Now, compare that to Section 504, which has all of 37 words to it. Yep. And then we got this, you know, very significant and very good uh, regulations out of HEW. Well, you know, today, eventually, uh, yes, eventually. Well, yes, eventually. But the point is, I th- I think if it were just 504 and we had to deal with uh, the federal regulations based on those 37 sure. words, we'd be dead in the water. We would. Yep. I, I agree. I agree. But again, part of the problem we have in much legislation that's already on the books is um it didn't anticipate this thing called the internet. Uh, and well, as a result, <laughs> exactly, how can you say something before it exists? So then you have this problem of potentially amending the original legislation to update it, to, to deal with new developments. But is this Congress capable of doing such a thing? Well, First of all, the, the first issue is, is the disability community likely to support legislation to amend the Americans with Disabilities Act? And my resounding answer to that is no. Um, and so if we want uh, to have... Because they would be worried? Is that because they would be worried that it would be amended in the wrong direction? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, and, and also because... There's not, from a disability-wide perspective, you know, we're, you know, obviously many folks with disabilities don't have any problem accessing the internet and websites. So from a disability-wide perspective, it, it's not a big enough problem to justify the risk inherent anytime you throw a bill into the legislative hopper in Congress, because the reality is, it's a crapshoot. 
and nobody controls what's going to come out of it. And so even if you're talking about, our, you know, friendly Democrats that, that want to promote an amendment to, uh, to provide for Internet accessibility, if someone comes along and says, uh, you know, hey, hey, Democrats, um, this, this web accessibility thing is a real problem. But if you drop it, um, I'll do X, Y and Z on on uh, climate change. Well, guess what? <laughs> it's good. It's, it'll be dropped because the Democrats are going to go for climate change. So that's why people don't want to amend the ADA. So the better result, the better approach, I believe, is to have separate legislation. And that legislation could refer to the ADA in terms of, you know, the remedial sections or some of the definitions, but would not itself be an amendment to the ADA. And we've seen that in a number of areas. And I think that's the only way we have any chance of, uh, of uh, getting statutory uh, Internet access. And, and I think the other thing that the, that the ADA has demonstrated, Chris, and I think you agree with this, is that is that you can also slowly but surely gain more by incrementally amending the regulations. Well, yeah, then you, you run into the issue that Brian was raising, which is um, the, the extent to which your regulatory amendments are fully supported by the underlying statute. In other words, sure. what the Supreme Court is trying to do is to say, look, um, when Congress delegates rulemaking authority, um, we really don't have to defer to that anymore because that's that's really that's really problematic. If if they're gonna if Congress is gonna say that these rules are like laws, but Congress didn't pass them, then we're not gonna defer to them. So um, that lack of deference, which is where the Supreme Court is going, and what's what they did in the EPA case, is. Um, you know, is a problem, but right. it's less of a problem for the ADA than it is for a lot of other laws. I'm going so to go I'm, back and, and mention a brief story, um, Paul, if I may. Back many, many years ago when uh, the Rehab Act was up for reauthorization, uh, uh, a gentleman at ACB, one Scott Marshall, uh, asked if I would be willing to come to Washington, D.C. and testify on it and um i did uh at that time i had just moved to massachusetts from oregon and there were a couple of things in particular that that i felt were examples of why the rehab act needed to be refreshed and that was that i as a blind person totally blind uh when i moved from state to state i suddenly had to prove i was blind again uh, because each state had its own requirements that rules be performed in a particular way. It's also true that if I were denied services in Oregon uh, because they've closed my case, which they had, when I moved to Massachusetts, they reopened my case. I suddenly went from being rehabilitated, according to Oregon, to unhabilitated, if there's such a word, <laughs> in Massachusetts. And so I testified at, on a panel, and there was the head of the National Association of Agencies for the Blind and Visually Impaired, whatever, uh, the, the big collections of these rehabilitation agencies in states and the like. And uh, 
after I gave my testimony suggesting that, in fact, the Rehab Act was not uh, writ by God and uh, was perfection, um, I got in such trouble <laughs> from the state agency I left. I was on their board, uh, and I got a letter saying, how dare you bite the hand that feeds you? And in Massachusetts, the then commissioner uh, complained because, after all, they did provide me services that helped me get a job. Unfortunately, he wasn't aware that the rehab counselor that helped me put together my resume um, did so under the table because it was against local local rules <laughs> for me to do that. So I believe in kind of challenging the system's need to circle wagons and protect what we have in uh, and put up with something less than what it should be out of fear that somebody might amend it the wrong direction. That was during the Reagan administration. And uh, I know there are people out there who hold the Derwood McDaniel in high esteem, as do I. But he was one of the ones who came down on me for saying something bad about the Rehab Act while Reagan was in office. Okay, so I, I was going to ask you um, one more question, um, Chris, but um, I, I'm not. I, I think it might divert us from where we are, but it, it and, and maybe at some point in the future we'll we'll do a show about this. But um, what I was going to ask you about, and I'm not going to now, is is whether the approach that's taken in the U.S. is is um, is more effective or better than the approach that's taken in other countries like Australia, Canada, and the UK. And, and maybe at some point we can do a show, you and I, Mr. Chris, uh, and Brian, about, um, uh, about the, the way that these kinds of laws have been implemented in other countries as well, so that we can get some comparison. Because we well, have more... You're going to make me do a lot of extra studying because I have no idea about oh, okay. what those other countries do. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've been interested, in the, but the interesting thing is that regardless of what they've done, we in this country still have more, um, and so it's fascinating. Um, even even so, though the, the the way that those laws get implemented is very different, they aren't so complaint driven as ours are, at least in some cases. So yeah, our laws are absolutely complaint driven. If you don't file a complaint or you don't file a charge or you don't file a lawsuit, nothing happens. There is yep. no governmental responsibility to do what you might call a compliance review right. um, of, of employers um, other than in federal contracts and that kind of thing. So right. yeah, it's a, it's a totally different animal. I want to tell one other quick story. Sure. Um, you know, people, you know, the people in the disability community, you know, didn't really understand um, a, a lot of what blind people need. And my best example of that was that when uh, the ADA was finalized in a committee report, the, uh, the committee report uh, said that blind people don't get paratransit. Um, oh, no. And the reason it, the reason it said that was that you know, people that wrote it that didn't have any knowledge about blindness, but knew about folks in wheelchairs, et cetera. So blind people don't have any problem getting on the bus. So 
you know, why the hell right. they have to take paratransit? And I got them to change it. And I, you know, I explained it. Well, let's see. First, there's the problem of getting to the damn bus stop and finding the mm -hmm. bus stop. And, you know, so they finally changed it. But um, it, you know, just, just sort of an example of, of how, you know, just like I don't understand all the issues that somebody who uses a wheelchair has or somebody who is deaf or, you know, got some other disability. It works that way for us, too. And so it's really important that, you know, nothing about us without us, it's really important to make sure that whatever goes on, that blind people are directly involved in crafting uh, any legislation or uh, rule, because we're the only ones that really understand how it'll impact us. Yeah. And, and I, so, guess, I guess I can ask you this question, since you were kind of there. D do you think blind people got less because there was a perception that blind people didn't give a jam, given the attitude of the National Federation of the Blind? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we were a divided constituency right. and a small constituency on top of that. And the yep. NFB really didn't give a damn. All they wanted out of it was language in the law, which is there, that mm -hmm. says you, you can't force somebody to take an accommodation if they don't want one. Right. And, yep. and that was it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's disheartening. It's, it's, it's one of the strongest reasons for trying to get to a place where um, the blind community can speak with a single voice, which, which I think we do on a lot of issues now, perhaps on more than we did then, um, which is interesting. Cool. Thanks for your time. Chris, well, has hands up. Chris thank, thank you, you very much. Yep. We appreciate it. We almost made you jump onto the panelist side and stay for the rest of the night, but we thought that wouldn't be fair. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Mr. Rick. Yeah, Peter, please. Peter. Peter. Hey, guys. How are you? We're hey, good. Good. Thank you for having this show. And I, I just want to make a few observations on the, on the plus side with the ADA. Um, one of the things that's been really helpful for me is when I run into a hassle uh, that's, that's blindness related, I use the word accommodation, and all of a sudden the whole conversation changes more often than not. You know, people know that language. And it makes it a little easier, not always, but often to get whatever I need to get done, done. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful for the ADA for that. Um, another thing I'm grateful for the ADA is I recently moved into a, uh, a large apartment building with 13 floors. And um, the fact that there are now Braille on all the elevator uh, buttons, which wasn't the case 30 years ago, and wasn't even the case in many cases, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and they even have, you know, the bells that be, you know, all that stuff that we're, we're sort of familiar with now that wasn't the case back in you know, when the ADA passed in 1990. And that's, you know, you, you know, for me, it's an enormous help, you know, just having that small stuff. And the, the third example I would give for myself per, uh, personally is I currently uh, tutor uh, Missouri student athletes and um, their website uh, the things I need to use in the way of forms to fill out stuff is wildly inaccessible. That's the bad news. Um, and they're working on that theoretically. The good news is that they, you know, the university understands the term reasonable accommodations, which means they have to find ways to, to, you know, for me to help me work around those issues. And I am fairly convinced that if th those reasonable accommodations weren't in place, you know, that terminology wasn't in place, I wouldn't have this job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying that things are perfect. You know, I, I've been ranting about employment issues for a long time, as you know, Paul. Uh, yes. 
Yeah. And, and um, you know, there, there are clearly problems with technology and so on and so forth. And it sure would be nice if, um, you know, if the ADA were made so that that technology, you know, would be more required to be more accessible. But, you know, I understand the complexities and all of that. So, I, you know, having said all that, um, I want to sort of turn a corner and sort of talk a little bit about, um, and, and this has been talked about a, a little bit already. I mean, we're now in a place, I think I said this last time that we had a similar conversation, that if if the ADA was up for, for ratification or passage now, I don't think it would pass. And, uh, you know, if for no other reason, because the Senate, the Senate would filibuster it. So, okay, that's interesting thought experiment. But what does that mean? How is that relevant now? What does that mean for us enforcement? What does that mean how we how we uh, think about um, advocating for you know for our needs under the ADA? And um, you know, and and we were talking. You guys were talking about the the courts and how they're they're less friendly than they might have been thirty years ago, at least in certain parts of the country. And the whole issue of 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 Asians having less less sway in what they can what they can or can't do and we have a supreme court that as we all know is is uh much more conservative now than it was when the ada was passed so what does that mean in advocating for stuff how, how does that change the way we think about advocating for stuff and i don't i don't have too many uh opinions but i do think it's important for us to think about that um so for example i think we, we need to think more locally and less nationally. I think we, you know, that I think the state uh, affiliates become much more important than they might have been 30 years ago. Um, and I think we, we probably need to, to uh, put more energy individually in, in, in communities in focusing on the businesses themselves. I'm thinking about it. The, so, it P- Peter, yeah, just, for, just for clarifications purposes. Yeah. Sure. You're saying that instead of instead of trying to amend the ADA, what we need to do is to pass state laws and, well, I'm talking, and local ordinances. Well, uh, not, I'm not talking about legislative per se. I'm talking how do we advocate for our needs with the ADA uh, under the ADA cloak, if you will. In other words, I'm not necessarily talking about making changes to the law. I don't think that's feasible. I don't. I don't. I mean, I know every state is different and have their own ADA requirements, and we may be able to do some good work in that arena. But I, I can't see how in this current climate, we can change the law for the better in the fit in the federal circumstances. I just don't see it. Maybe I'm wrong. I just don't uh, see, see it. Right I, now. I, I, I don't know if I agree with, with your premise that the AD wouldn't pass, but, but let me ask Brian first. Do you, what do you think, Brian, would the ADA pass? I think it's going to be very hard to pass any legislation as simple as politicians should be allowed to shake people's hands. You, you can't get these people to agree on anything. And right now it looks as if uh, the conservatives are going to take the House. The, uh, so we're going to have a president and a Senate in one party and the House in another in a world that is more polarized than ever before. Uh, So I have real problems, especially if you take a look at the legislation that's been going on during the past 48 hours. Uh, The uh, last minute 
blocking of the veterans yeah. uh, support for uh, being poisoned by burn piles during their service. Uh, the last minute uh, turnaround of one senator bringing back forward the Reconciliation Act. The I mean, how how can you guess for one moment what might happen if first it comes to the attention of our Congress? Uh, my uh, like my argument. My argument would would be a little bit different from either of yours. My argument would essentially be that whenever you're coming to a point where elections are going to happen, one of the things that every politician wants to be able to do is, is to claim that they've been a part of passing legislation that's important. And I think that if if senators and members of the House were given the opportunity to play with the ADA, um, they, they would feel more comfortable dealing with uh, a law like that um, than, than they would dealing with virtually any other and might be inclined to pass it simply so they could say they did something great for, for what is actually the largest minority group in the country. So I live, I live in Missouri, Brian, right now, as, as I'm sure you know, and I have mm-hmm. to tell you, uh, Missouri is, is, a, is a really conservative state. And my sense is uh, that um, the, the general sense of Missouri legislature is get government out of our lives, except when it comes to our bodies and abortion. I mean, I'm being a uh-huh. bit snarky, but but uh, but that is sort of the way I see it. They 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 just don't think they should be. Uh, it, encouraging businesses to do anything, you know, along, uh, you know, in in line yep. with there, there's certainly strong arguments against Title Three, so I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, yeah, but but I but Paul, you may be right. I mean, you know, I, I'm not, I, but I, I guess I, I I just I think these kinds of conversations that the threat have need to happen more more openly than I don't think they right. are at least, um, and that's really the issue I'm trying to raise. How, how do we, given the current political climate, which I think is very different than it was 33 years ago. Sure it is. Years ago. How, how does that impl- it, it influence the way we advocate? Yeah. You know, and and how do we, uh, it, how do we uh, allocate our resources, our limited resources, both in the blindness community, but also in the disability community, to get as much positivity done as, as we can or to mm-hmm. prevent negative stuff from happening? Um, and and I, 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 it just bothers me that we aren't having, it doesn't seem we were having that conversation in a thoughtful way. And I think we need to Peter, have that. I wanted to say one quick thing about one of your recommendations. Sure. It's this idea that do, in fact, are our state affiliates more valuable now than they've ever been? Because we need to uh, be thinking what we can do locally to affect things when trying to do things and on a federal level have become really problematic and i happen to be one of those who think that we undervalue our state affiliates uh in a variety of different ways but one of them is uh an assumption by our organization that it's best if things are always done on the federal level i see the value of that because there's consistency across the nation and i think a blind person in 
Texas should have access to the same things that a blind person in Massachusetts has access to. Uh, but the reality is that uh, Tip, Tip O'Neill once said, all politics is local. And uh, I think that with, if ACB put a little more emphasis on getting local involvement, state affiliate involvement in some of our issues that we'd be more effective all around. I don't, I don't, I think, the, we, I don't think we have much of a choice personally right yeah. now. I, I just don't. I, you know, maybe yeah. things will be different five years from now, you know, but, but right now, I mean, as, as I see things, uh, we, I think we really do need to, uh, decentralize a little bit. I, I mean, we're supposed to be in, we're supposed to be decentralized organization, aren't we? We're, we're supposed to, you know, the, one of the differences between NFB is we're supposed to be a bottom up, not a top down organization. It's my understanding. That's one of the myths, if you will, of, or the myth of the, uh, of, a, of AC. Now, so, now. <laughs> I'm being a bit snarky, but, but seriously, I, I, you know, if, if we are what we say we are, then we should, then this should not be, a, this should, you know, th this should be a national thing for us to do. I guess is what I'm I guess saying. one one of the questions that that I would raise, and, I, and I, I'm not sure I know the answer, though I suspected, if we were to do an ADA quiz, um, would would 95 percent of our members pass? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not sure I pass either. Uh, you know, I, I, what this reminds me of is uh, I ran a, a, a ADA quiz a, a while back uh, uh, for an employment committee workshop. And one of the one of the questions that came up was, for example, which which I sort of knew, but certain people did not, was that the um, religious faith communities aren't covered under the ADA. Right. They aren't. And, yep. you know, I sort of knew that uh, because of a weird circumstances, but a lot of people didn't. There's so much stuff that people and it's not it doesn't not because they're not interested, yep. just stuff we just don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and this sort of brings me up to another point. I mean. You know, are there things that we can do that aren't ADA related that would that, that would hush, that would um, you know that help us be more effective? And I'm thinking about faith communities, for example. There clearly is a need for advocacy within the faith communities to make their programs and services and whatever more accessible. You know, I'm experiencing this now in the in the, in the church I I go to, and I'm fortunate. Um, but from the, some of the other stories I've heard, you know, I just I'm thinking that. We, I think, we need to be more creative and how we advocate and how we advocate, who we advocate to, and when, and, and you know, all that stuff. And the ADA and, is a major part of what you know is a, is a major resource, but we may have to be a little more creative. And and perhaps the ADA is a benchmark we can use in advocating in other areas Correct. by saying, well, if if this is something that the ADA considers, whether it does well or not, clearly it's something that that other people might want to do well. Mr. Peter, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Paul, sir. Paul, we will, we will talk just, again. If I can just make an editorial I'm comment. Sure, I'm sure you we can, will. Rick. I, I can't resist. Um, um, you know, in terms of, you know, being top down or bottom up, we need to be both things, depending upon what the situation is. Okay. And I, I, I really rail at, this notion that it's an either or situation okay so uh well i think that they're just like the country i live in um some things are, there, are best there, done there local are things there are things you do and at the some things level. are best done federal 
Yeah, things you do at the federal level and things you do at the state level. Okay, exactly. And you can't do stuff at the state at the federal level uh, from the bottom up. I'm sorry, you just can't. Okay, so so as I've said, my but but that, but go to the legislative seminar and go to have each one of those delegations go to their elected officials. And what's the first thing when you try to get an appointment they want to know? Are you, uh, are, you, are you in my district? Are you in my district? Yeah. Number but, one question. Right. But the reason, anything you, else. the reason why you've got, you know, you, you, you have to, uh, you know, coordinate it at, at the top level. And, you know, I'm not saying it's top down, but you got to coordinate. So, so that oh, you, don't go cross, you don't go cross purposes with, with each other. Okay? Absolutely. If, if you're really Absolutely. serious about federal legislation, right? So, you know, if I, so, so the whole the whole point is, it, it doesn't have to be. It's not an either or. Okay. Yeah, I, I I think I would agree with that, but but I would probably go a little bit further and say that I think that um, while while the top does a good job of a bunch of things that they do. Um, in the whole history of ACB, and I'm not saying it's just now, but in the whole history of ACB, we have never, never done a really good job of, of getting state affiliates um, to be on the same page as we are nationally and to provide the assistance that state affiliates often need um, uh, just just because we haven't. In fact, I think probably over the last couple of years, we've done a better job if you look at voting and some of the other things where, where, where there's been cooperation. But uh, Brian will remember how hard we worked um, to try to get state affiliates to, to even create a legislative liaison for us. We just couldn't get them to do it. Yep. Because, and, uh, and understand. Because they were reacting to what they perceived to be you know, the differences between us and NFP. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe to a degree, but I think more than that, it 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 has to do with the fact that as long as you try to operate a confederation, which is what which is what ACB is, you you have to deal with the fact that it is a weaker form of government than either either a federation or a unitary government, which is essentially what what the NFB operates. Okay. We've got Tim Hill in the queue. Tim. Tim. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd just like to know when ACB is going to grow some teeth and maybe get uh, some of our members who are lawyers to file class action lawsuits to get things like, you know, more accessible internet and fitness centers and also get more television shows audio described and that kind of thing. Why can't we file class action lawsuits on behalf of our members? So I live, I live in the third world state of West Virginia, by the way. <laughs> gotcha. Um, first, thank you for your call, Tim. Um, and, and, and second, um, I guess I'll let Brian take the first stab unless he wants me to. Well, generally speaking, um, there are tens of thousands, I don't think I'm overestimating, and maybe underestimating, of situations where 
something is wrong in the way things are operated. Uh, and they're legally wrong in the way that they function or fail to function. So any organization, and I mean any, not just because we're our size or we're blindness, but any organization has to prioritize where they're going to put their resources. And by resources, I mean certainly money, because staff requires money, office space requires money, travel requires money. So there's the money side of things. There's also uh, the issue of divided focus. Um, if you've got five balls you're juggling, that requires one level of focus. If you're juggling 10 balls, the amount of time you can focus on any one ball is half as many, half as much attention as that five ball juggling trick. So we have to pick and choose what we do. Uh, I think that we do a fair job of that, but not a perfect job of that by any means. One of the ways we establish priorities is through our resolutions. If the membership says this is most important, then that's what the staff have to do. On the other hand, the membership may be calling on staff to do more than there's hours in the day to do. And maybe there's an imbalance between the volunteer label, labor of our members versus the paid labor of our staff. And I think that doing that balancing act between priorities, member, member responsibility versus staff responsibility, and this whole issue of divided attention. I think that that's, that's quite a thing to try to accomplish. ACB does better, I think, than we give it credit for, but it still can do better than it's currently doing. And what I would what I would add, Tim, is 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 if you take, for instance, getting more audio description on television shows. Um, the fact is that what what all of the entities that are providing these things are doing is obeying the law, and that's in terms of the networks. In terms of in terms of the streaming entities, there is actually no law that requires them to do anything, and so the fact that they are is is a huge step in our favor and a huge step in the right direction. And, and so, uh, you know, I think, I, I, I think there are times when it would be appropriate for ACB to file lawsuits. And we did, for example, against the U.S. Treasury. And we have won consistently with that. The only trouble is that we will all probably be dead before we have fully accessible currency. So you don't always get what you think you will when you file lawsuits. So interesting. So any, any other comments, Tim? Just, I just think that, you know, we, we could get, we should have lawyers that are members of ACB that can work on a pro bono basis. And sure. And if we can, like the, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I mean, I think we need more, be more of a squeaky wheel than we are. So we certainly need to be out there more. And I think everybody would agree with this, Tim. 
we certainly need to be out there more talking about stuff that's inaccessible and stuff we can't do and stuff that doesn't work. And we need to be sure that folks at all levels know that that's the case. Yes, we were talking about the ADA being complaint-driven. If you don't complain, nothing's going to happen. That's mm-hmm. just the nature of how the law works. Yeah. Secondly, Tim. you got to take time to complain to the right persons. A lot of the time, the blindness community complains to one another and not through the, quote, official channels, unquote, mm-hmm. uh, where those complaints uh, should be directed. Tim, thank you for your call, sir. Paul? Yes. This is Marianne. We also Hi. won. Hi. We also won a very big um, DOJ lawsuit with Social Security documents. That was yep. a big one too. It was exactly. a big one. And the other thing I was thinking as I'm listening is, you know, wouldn't this be an opportunity to use community calls for something big? You know, to get affiliates to to join community calls to really get educated on on um, the needs. You know, what what we need to do. Maybe do some training on ADA. Is that yeah. what you're suggesting, yeah. Marianne? Yeah, that's yep. what I'm thinking. I, and and a sure. set where and or a session at the um, you know at conventions. I, I yeah, just, or at the legislative seminar. Yeah, because it is it yeah. is a it's a mystery to a lot of people. Yep, yep. So. I think I think those are good suggestions, Marianne. Thank you. You're welcome. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Yep, Mr. Rick. Yeah, we got Melody Holloway, please. Same hey, name. Melody. Hello. Hello, Hi. Ohio. <laughs> yes. Um, I have devoted my time to registering for and attending a lot of the White House disability engagement stakeholder calls, including the one around the ADA anniversary, as well as the some of the NCLER calls and some of the Great Lakes ADA Center calls with the coordinator there. And it's amazing how separate we are and not thought of and not considered. And we I can type vigorously in the Q&A, you know, all I want to. And it's we don't necessarily get the chance to speak up on a national level as much as we need to. And I've noticed with personal experience with ACB advocacy, who is wonderful, on a federal level, no one is going to know any particular time what states and counties, um, even affiliates, are, are doing. And there are times when I don't know when I'm asked, what does your state do about this? Or if I do know, it's kind of not what someone might know what to do on a national level. And so an ADA as a, you know, a national act, it's so specific needs can be overlooked. You know, it even seems that the non-Braille readers can be left out when we're focusing on the Braille menus and the Braille elevators. And I'm an avid Braille reader and want to think of my peers who are not. It's just, you know, it's so hard. And now with this whole wide spectrum of multiple disabilities that I didn't know I had, and I I recently read a statistic that um, congenitally blind people, most likely other disabilities or additional are common. It's not uncommon to see it. We just don't know that. And so it seems that when it comes to accessibility and how COVID has left us, you know, and and amending the ADA, it almost needs to happen, but federally how you know and how now and and lives are still at risk and and declining at times and it's just no one it's not possible quickly to know what 
one hand is doing with the other in communication and all these inconsistencies. So it's kind of where does the ADA fall in? And then because our disability is so specific need-wise and how we adapt and the ways we get things done, if we have anything in addition, it's this divide. I feel like a personal, you know, I live in 12 different boxes. So I, I don't know if that was helpful at all. I just... I I don't think it's unhelpful, uh, but but I'm going to ask you a question, and and then I'm going to uh, going to get Brian perhaps and and myself to talk about one of the things you talked about. I think another group that feels like it didn't get a lot out of the ADA are folks who have um, psychiatric disabilities. Would you agree with that? My goodness, yes, we are separated by, you know, doctors and I even had social workers and caseworkers and things say you're seen as separate. And now I'm told that there's probably neurological things. I'm actually waiting for a, an autism evaluation because there's too much pointing to it. And it's known with ROP and some of these congenital eye conditions and with the LGBT right. community just missed in adult women, my Medicare mm-hmm. and my age older than 22 is standing in the way. And I, I actually have one scheduled, a global organization saw need and read tons of reasons why. So a lot of mm-hmm. these things can be mistaken as. So yes, this divide is just, I, I definitely agree because the, the, neither one of these major um, groups know what to do with the other. And I feel as right. if and we can't always put our hands on and feel things as we need to. And I'm just thrown back and forth. And so it's kind of, the decline is so progressive, it's just hard to prove that nationally we're right here. So yes, I would wholeheartedly agree with the call. Very good. So <clears throat> you talked about Braille menus as opposed to other approaches that can be taken in terms of restaurant menus. And it I, I was thinking earlier, and I'm gonna ask Brian to comment on this. Brian, if we were if we were going for this issue now, um uh, I, I'm not even sure we would we we'd get Braille menus because there are so many more options that are available now that are accessible in terms of getting at restaurant menus than than there were 30 years ago. Would you agree with that? Uh, as always, it's a yes and no. I generally agree that there are a lot of methods that can make a restaurant menu accessible to a broader audience. These days here in Massachusetts, almost all Braille menus are bound with a large print menu in the same binder. Yep. Uh, that's one. Two, uh, low vision support devices have become much more handheld these sure. days. So yep. a low vision person can just use the regular menu and pull out their handheld magnifier. Right. It's not everybody by any means, but it's it's a large group but you also have this issue of whether or not the technology is should be the the cost of that technology should it be the burden of the person with the disability or an expectation of the business itself i remember sitting in a restaurant in uh, san francisco i think with uh with uh um, eric and uh, the head of accessibility at microsoft and the wine person came by and handed our table a, an iPad that we were expected to use to look at the wine menu. And it so happened that they hadn't blocked it. So we were able to turn voiceover on. And Eric and I 
reviewed and chose the wine for the that is that's really enabling but yes. how likely is that to happen uh out there regularly and what part should it play that uh a braille reader experiences information differently than a large print reader or an audio reader um uh, uh, I, if i'm I guess used to I, braille does that matter i guess that I matter would, I, uh, Mm, I I don't know. I, Remember I, BRL, I, former president. Yes, I know. I get what you're saying, and I, and 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 I get that that the answer I should offer is supposed to be yes. Um, <laughs> but but I I I'm not sure I can do it because be, because I have some sympathy for restaurant owners, um, who who probably nowadays would would find it easier to meet the the inherent requirements of the ada but not not even any longer with braille menus and braille menus are 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 bizarre i mean i i went to a restaurant um last week where they had braille menus and they were very proud of themselves i may have been the first one who'd used them um, but they had braille menus the difficulty was i ordered three things and none of them were on the menu anymore <laughs> yeah so well, again there's there's the logistics of any kind of accommodation uh, right. i was at a um olive garden i think it was and the only way you could get the waiter's attention to come back is to use the little kiosk that's sitting on every table and you right. had to click on the thing that says the equivalent of raise your hand if you want something and you could even indicate what you want is a refill of your coffee so that they come by with the pot and not come by and say what do you need coffee and have to go back and retrieve it but it was fully inaccessible yep a good fully point inaccessible but, but uh, on i think the other debbie hand, hazelton is raising her hand do you she think is. she's got something on this subject yeah so she might have but let me just make one go two ahead. other points qr codes um, especially if if they're organized well by the restaurant, can actually create an accessible way of getting to menus. And and a, a, another way is there are a lot of apps out there like Yelp, um, and and at least to some extent some others, um, which actually have menus for many of the restaurants that are on those apps. Absolutely, whose responsibility to provide you with the technology? that is necessary for you to access that when the sighted person next to you picks up a piece of paper and has access to it well these days he's often looking at 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 technology as well but he's not required to do so uh, i i think in some restaurants he is um because it's the only thing that there is there's there is a there is a thing on the table and that technology includes the menu and the way to pay the bill <laughs> in some restaurants yep so uh, it's it's interesting anyway miss miss melody thank you very much we appreciate it and mr rick is is debbie about yeah I am. hi hello hello oh my gosh it's good to be here um mm -hmm. Paul, I think I'm going to see you in a couple of months. Uh, I will call you soon on that. Um, Please do. So, 
Yeah. So um, you got one hell of a fan club tonight, Paul. That's two. Ooh. Yeah. That's two. <laughs> so I want to brag a little bit. Um, I was in a Cracker Barrel a couple of days ago, and I went there with a couple of favorite things in mind. And after I taught, I didn't even ask for the Braille menu because I was sure I knew what I wanted. And after I asked for all like three things that I wanted and they didn't have them, I suddenly said I wanted to see the Braille menu. I was sure. I thought for sure it was not going to have been updated. And it was. Oh my. It had been updated since COVID. It talked about curbside pickup. And um, it really had all the things that I was looking for were eliminated from that menu. Now, the one thing I would say about all those restaurants that think they shouldn't do Braille menus is um, I like to say that um, deaf blind people will always help be some of our best advocates for Braille. I mean, it's, it's non-negotiable. Um, the other thing I just want to offer, um, and I know there are times that a lawsuit is the only way, but I hear lawsuit thrown around like, you know, anybody who's angry, let's just get a lawsuit. And, you know, we know with, um, you know, the work of Lainey Feingold and the work of uh, Clark and others, Eric, um, who have done so much advocacy, that there's often a lot that can happen with advocacy that's that isn't you know creating enemies by thinking lawsuit is the only way and i want to say that i'm a little tired of this um difference between organizations bottom up and top down more and more i am seeing both doing uh, more of a listening to their people and working uh, in the middle. Maybe they're surely both can improve in a number of ways. I just want to say, I think we need to stop some of that, um, those generalizations. So, um, but yeah, otherwise great show. Thank you. Thank you. So Brian, talk, talk to us a little bit about, um, Deb talked about Lainey Feingold, who is an attorney from California. Um, but you've been involved in some of her stuff. She calls it structured negotiation. And tell us a little bit about what it means as an alternative way of settling um, disputes. Well, thank you, Paul. And yeah, in fact, I had Lainey on the phone today. Um, but what people need to understand is, uh, and this has been pretty much ACB's philosophy in terms of, of action steps is the first thing we do is we reach out to the entity that we find ourselves in disagreement with, whatever that issue or product is. So we send out a note, a letter, uh, over an attorney's name. It doesn't hurt to have Esquire at the end of the name of a carbon copy recipient, indicating the nature of the problem we're having and expressing our interest in speaking with them on how we might help them resolve it. We never say, you've got a problem, go fix it. We say, you have a problem, we want to help you find a way to fix it. That's step one in any structured negotiation. Uh, We then, from that, if we get any kind of response, move it to the next level, which is let's 
get together, your people and my people, to discuss the, uh, in more detail the nature of our uh, problem with their product or service. Um, with attorneys can be there if they want to, but what we really need to do is to have the person or persons that are having the problem speak with the person or persons who have some understanding of the nature of that part of the business. So it doesn't do you any good to talk lawyer to lawyer about a website if there's not a web developer on the call. It doesn't do you any good to talk about alternative formats if there isn't somebody who understands the nature of creating Braille in a modern world. Mm-hmm. Got to be there. So we put together groups that fit those two from, uh, from each of the participants. And sometimes it's multiple entities, not just the, the consumer rep and a business or a government agency. And then we start to work out what the, what the solutions are, making recommendations to uh, the company or agency about resources that we know about because we interact with it every day and they don't. Uh, make the connections for them. We don't recommend a single uh, solution to the problem. If you're having website accessibility problems, we give you a list of a half a dozen names of companies that can assist you in correcting those problems. If you have a design problem with the nature of your uh, product, something you can hold in your hand, then we know people who have expertise in universal design for such things. So we make those connections. And as we go back and forth in this partnership, we develop a uh, legal document that's basically an agreement that we're going to work together to solve these problems and a timeline during which those problems are to be either resolved or agreed by both parties that we need more time to work on. And that's been successful with companies like Netflix, uh, entities like uh, Amazon, yep. uh, HBO Max, Baseball, yep. HBO Max. Uh, so a number of different entities. And, and it actually started now. out with, with being the way that we initially got uh, access to um, accessible ATM machines. Exactly. So it goes back quite a while, and it's been quite successful. Sometimes something that you make accessible with one company, proving your point, blows up and does wonderful things for a lot of other companies. Mm -hmm. Again, I point at Netflix and what has happened in terms of streaming services. And I point at Bank of America, the first talking ATMs, and look at how many talking ATMs there are around the country. It's, uh, it's hard not to find a talking ATM. So uh, it's it proven to be quite useful. Does that mean we never need to do a lawsuit? No, because sometimes we send out this letter, we get silence. Sometimes when we send out the letter, we get a, we don't think that applies to us. Thank you very much, but no thank you. And we will attempt through partnerships with other entities to see if we can get a way into a different person at that entity who might be more sympathetic. But at some point, 
it's determined that, in fact, without um, taking some form of legal action, we're not going to get very far. And sometimes the whole game changes when the administration of that company changes. You had mentioned uh, HBO Max. That's an excellent example of just that thing. We were beating our heads against the wall to try to get anybody's attention. Then HBO Max was bought by another company that was bought by another company. And suddenly it was a fundamental issue for that company to make its content accessible. And they came back to us and we started this new relationship. Well, I think it's important to, to recognize that that the ADA has not been the only way that that um, that the American Council of the Blind has made progress over the last twenty years. Structured negotiation has played a, a huge part in what we do. Um, I can't remember, Brian, if if um, Laney's book is on um, Bard. I know it's on Bookshare. Um, so if, if folks are interested in learning more about what Laney's done, she has written a very readable book on structured negotiations where she goes through the whole process and explains in, in great detail how it works. And um, I would recommend it to folks. Now, Mr. The, Rick, yes, I would also, but I also yep. want to say that she is anxious, anxious, actively engaged in trying to train the next generation of lawyers who want to embrace this approach toward the law. Mm -hmm. um, I spoke with her today and she's had to turn down two things because the woman wants to retire. Now, she's not going to retire and do nothing, but she's going to do a great deal more careful decision on what cases to take on and what she simply doesn't have the bandwidth to do. So we need more people in that field. Yeah. So if we have some young lawyers in ACB who are looking for an area to specialize in, now's your chance. Amen. Yep. Amen. Mr. Rick. Rick. Yeah, Lynn Schneider, please. Hey, Lynn. Hi. Hey. Hi. Um, I have a question and a, a comment. Um, I'm going to start with my comment. I wanted to um, address something that um, Paul was talking about where um, there, there seems to be a sometimes a disconnect between the affiliates and um, national. Uh -huh. um, and we're a very small state. Uh, I'm from Delaware. So we struggle, but we, we hang in there and we do what we can do. One thing that I think is really, really great is our, these community calls because I myself, ever since the start of the community calls, I have just become so proud of ACB and what it does. And I think I never realized how engaged and how wonderful um, the advocacy is. And the, I've had a chance to share with other states our challenges and how they handle their challenges. And so I think these community calls should really be, you know, used and utilized more frequently and more often because right. they do help with that connection to the national. Right. I, I mean, I'm going to, I'm, I'm taking notes on this event and I'm going to be sharing a lot of this information with my chapter meeting. 
Oh, excellent. And I think um, I think you really make a very good point, Lynn. Thank you very much for making Okay, and I'm just going to ask one more question, question, and I'll get sure. off and then let you guys address this. I'm wondering if you look at the demographics of the United States population, but not just the United States, the entire world. We are all getting older. I know the baby boomers think they're going to be young forever. You know, they go to their plastic surgeons and they, you know, get their facelifts or whatever, but it's not going to stop retinal disease. <laughs> you know, it's not going to stop arthritis. It's not going to stop some of these age related um, disabilities. Do you think that as we, reach this demographic time bomb that we are going to reach very soon, that we're going to have more advocates because I don't think this generation of older people is going to stand for staying in their homes and not doing anything. I think these are going to be people that are going to want to remain in their homes and be independent. So do you think that we could somehow harness, you know, that demographic um, situation to our advantage to really get more people involved, um, you know, in these issues. Well, I, I have some thoughts on this, if I may. One is that um, I have in my wallet right next to my uh, uh, other cards, my AARP card. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I have one. Okay. Too. Me too. So, and it gives me some advantages if I go to the movie theater or, or some discounts and the like. But when I get my virtual daily update in my email about what my AARP membership gives me, they say they're the largest advocacy group uh, of its kind in the world. And I think that's true. But what I also note when reading the AARP newsletter, is there's very little discussion about disability. Absolutely. Almost none. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the both of their newsletters are on BARD, so anybody can read them. Right. And when you do, you, and when you, and again, we're so used to not seeing the ads that, that maybe you're not aware of this, but almost all of the ads in those publications show healthy elders mm -hmm. playing volleyball on beaches in Hawaii or whatever. They're not at all focused on drinking on cruise ships. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just saying that, there's, that that mentality is there in the older community in general. And the system promotes it, promotes that attitude about disability. We can kind of wish it away. Um, so I'm I, I empathetic with the idea of getting elders more involved, but I also know that um, when you attempt to go to things like uh, our local uh, senior center and the like, um, those individuals. Uh, treat it like it is a club, which is fine. Uh, when we come to try to speak to them about uh, vision loss and that the world doesn't end when you can't, you know, using your vision do a given thing, 
they're very poorly attended mm-hmm. uh, compared mm-hmm. to an opportunity to, uh, uh, I don't know, look up your ancestors on an- ancestry or whatever. It, <laughs> so it's a struggle. It, you know, we have to acknowledge that blindness is feared first and foremost mm-hmm. among disabilities. Things, that, according to all the studies I've ever seen, it's always been heart attacks, cancer, and blindness. Those are the three right. big scary ones. So, so, so I'm going to talk on entirely the other side of the coin. Go for it. Brian. Um, first, um, ACB has a special interest affiliate called AAVL, uh, which is the uh, Association of People Aging and Vision Loss. And that group is actually working pretty hard in collaboration with another component, um, which is the the national, um, well, what do they call it? it it's uh, anyway. It, it is a it is a national effort on aging that involves uh, a large number of organizations of blind folks, um, and that national entity is actually doing a good deal to uh, to begin. Uh, to try to change some things. ACB over the last two or three years has passed several resolutions that speak directly to the needs of older blind folks. And that, for example, say that one of the things we have to do at the state and local level much more is to get involved with not only senior centers, but area agencies on aging and state departments that oversee those entities um, because they essentially, as Brian suggests, are not doing a good job of providing services to people who are blind, don't know how to serve people who are blind, and for the most part, aren't prepared to develop and implement connections that would enable them to do that. So, but the, the the point that I think I'm making is there are a lot of initiatives that are being operated now. And by the way, the time bomb is already here. There are statistics that are out there that say the population of people who are blind um, over the next decade or so uh, is going to double when you're looking at people over the age of 65. Um, And so the bombshell is already there because this is also the population for whom the least amount of resources are available. So you're perfectly correct. Um, to raise the issue as an important one and to recognize that the issue as you have as well is whether these folks are going to be able to stay in their homes or whether they will force be forced to be institutionalized because of their blindness, which just doesn't need to happen. All of that so, is absolutely true from a blindness perspective. Right. From a public at large perspective, it's hard. It's just yep. plain hard. Yep, and, and so you have to be, you have to be determined to make it happen, and I think you should. You know, mm-hmm. ACB has said in pretty much since I've been in it, and I started in my youth, um, that we need younger members. We need younger members. We need younger members. I think we need a demographic that reflects the blindness community as a whole, and that, that means, means that we most need of older our members. members. We need, need older to be members. older. We need older yep. members. I agree. Lynn, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pam Mr. Coffee. Rick. Yeah, Pam, coffee, please. Yes. 
Good evening. Um, Good evening. First of all, I'm not much help in what you mentioned a while ago because I am neither a lawyer nor young. <laughs> oh, don't I wish? But, but, um, well, what time I for you to go back to school, Pam. Oh, um, <laughs> at this age, <laughs> I'm not sure I remember how to write a term paper. Uh, ooh. Anyway, uh, but my comment is we can say all we want to, and I'm going to give the example of the talking ATM. We can say all we want to that the banks have talking ATMs. Now, one day I went to the bank that where I've had an account for ever, just about. It's changed names about four times because it was bought out. Um, they have what is supposed to be an accessible ATM. It's right out, it's on the sidewalk right next to the door going into the bank. And I thought, okay, I'm going to use it. And I took a little headset because I figured I would need it because I wanted it to be private. And I plugged that thing in and somehow got the instructions to come up. And the instructions were going about that speed. And I'm standing there trying to figure it out because the instructions were not well written. And, you know, here I am trying to figure out how to get this thing to work. And there's a line forming behind me of others who wanted to use it. And I finally got to the point of thinking, saying, oh, the heck with it. So I unplugged my little headset and I walked inside the lobby and went up to the teller's desk and said, you know, this is what I've got to do. The ATM is not user friendly. Interesting. Brian, how how would you respond to that? Because I, I you know, I I think I think it's an interesting issue because Pam is not saying it's not accessible. Yes, we have this problem always with with this term accessibility. Accessible means you can do it. Accessible does not mean you will enjoy the experience. Um, certainly, anybody can come up to that ATM and what's slow for one person is fast for the next person. What mm -hmm. makes perfectly sense, good sense to one person makes no sense at all to the next person. Um, and, and yet, this one machine has to do that for everybody. We talk about universal design as a, as a um, what would you call it? Uh, an, hooking your wagon to a northern star, you know, something really <laughs> worth reaching out for. And that's great. Mm -hmm. But that also suggests that there's such a thing as an average person. Right. There is no critter as an average person. Uh, mm -hmm. So under those circumstances, what those instructions did for you is when you plugged in that headphone, it began yes. giving you directions. It yes. got a sensor in it that says, 
Don't bother until somebody plugs this in. Then you plug it in. First thing you should do is ask whether you want things in English or Spanish. Because that's the second yes. language in the United States. And mm -hmm. you should be able to be told it should be English if you do nothing, the primary language, or mm -hmm. Espanol, press mm -hmm. up arrow. You will find the up arrow in this location, whatever it might be. And that said in if Spanish. If I remember you, correctly, as an English that. speaker, I got that for yeah. I got that right. Part. And you, as an English speaker, mm -hmm. have to put mm -hmm. up with hearing the Spanish stuff, knowing that that's an accommodation for somebody else. So mm -hmm. you have to be patient for that. Uh, and I have to admit, I'm not the most patient person in the world. But nonetheless, I understand I have to be patient for that. Then it should ask you. Uh, if you want it to be faster, press right arrow. If you want it to be slower, press, press left arrow. Mm -hmm. And it should keep saying that along with mm -hmm. the phrase, if you're happy with where it is, press the enter key, the one between the left and right arrow, right? Mm -hmm. that, that center button. It should I don't do that. Think it, I but don't they think don't it gave me that option. No, no it, it did. It did. It's not is universal it, language. It should uh -huh. be. I fully agree with you. Mm -hmm. But the law does not require mm -hmm. consistency when it comes mm -hmm. to these kinds of things. I, I do my banking with Bank of America. That's one script. But occasionally, I'm not where there's a Bank of America ATM. So I use right. somebody else's ATM, and I get sent on a totally different experience when Got that it. happens. And the, the other know, the other thing that I would say to you, Pam, is is that uh -huh. somebody may very well have walked up to that machine and walked away just like you did, saying, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but that machine is talking so fast, I can't understand a thing. <laughs> exactly. The speed is one issue. But the other one is the other people in the line behind you. How, do you, how much do you want to guess that one out of five people behind you is going to come and be swearing at that machine? Because they can't figure out how to make it work for them. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't it, know. It, I've walked I'm, past it many a time, and I've never heard anyone swear at it. They're just... <laughs> <laughs> You're in a nicer neighborhood than me, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pam, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate that. Thank yep. you. Great Bye -bye. Yep. And And uh, see, I mean, one of the questions is, how far should laws go? And, and let's relate what Pam says. Should should we in laws or in regulations go so far as to say, for instance, that scripts ought to put the speed second? You know, surely that would be better for a lot of us who are trying to vote, for instance, on voting machines where where it, it left left to our left to itself, voting would take everybody who's blind half an hour if you're if you're using uh this kind of a device. So sh should we make that a part of the regulations or a part of the law? It's a good question. It, it is an interesting question. You know, when you stop to see the language involved in describing an accessible curb cut mm -hmm. and the specificity in that, including mm -hmm. outlining what exceptions there are and mm -hmm. what remedies there would be for mm -hmm that exception then maybe we need some of these things built someplace but i don't know how effective those 
regulations when they get that specific. Actually, exactly. Are. Yep, Mister Rick. Yeah, we got Chris Bell back. Yeah, I, well, Chris Bell back. I think I think you guys are um, not really understanding the huge spectrum of accommodation needs of the disability community. You got people with cognitive impairments <clears throat> that need instructions in simple language, yep. which is a requirement that actually is, is rarely uh, met in terms of accessibility. Yeah, <clears throat> You got people that have uh, high frequency hearing loss so that um, the, the instructions, what, regardless of the speed, um, have to take that into account because that's the most common uh, form of hearing loss. And I could go on and on and on and on. And, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I really doubt uh, that there is a universally accessible design for, for many pieces of equipment. And by the way, that's, the ADA doesn't apply to that. You know, the ADA doesn't cover devices. Um, it does have, have things about architectural accessibility and some communications, but, you know, it, it, there's no standard for ATM machines. Um, no, in, and, in, we're, and we're not know, saying so, that there are, right? Right, but my point, my point is, right, but my point is, so number one, it'll, it'll be a huge change in law to require manufacturers to design and manufacture accessible devices for people who are blind as well as for other uh, disabilities. That just doesn't exist yet. And uh, secondly, if it would exist, it's going to be pretty complicated to meet the whole variety, the whole spectrum of abilities and limitations within the disability community. And that's all I wanted to say. Okay, well, and, and I, but I want to be clear that we don't disagree with you in any of that. What, where we, like I said, there's no such thing as an average person, and there's only so many adjustments you can make in a single device for this broad spectrum we know as humanity. Um, the minute I said Spanish, there's somebody out there who wants uh, Haitian. Haitian Creole, you know, or or some other language, right? So when Microsoft releases a new product, they talk about it being world ready. They won't release it until it is world ready. And what they mean by that is it's available in every bloody language in the world. Um, and they made a commitment to do that. But it comes with complications. And anybody who has ever tried to install windows on a new machine knows what i'm talking about uh selecting just your language is the first hurdle of the process but it's an accommodation to all those people who do not speak english so how far do we go for people who have hearing loss which is on a spectrum vision loss that's on a spectrum um cognitive problems which is on a spectrum you know I, again i i hear the words universal design but i like you chris find it hard to imagine a situation where that's possible but there is this little thing coming up called artificial intelligence that is 
going to enable a lot of things that we can't imagine on our own right now. I think artificial intelligence is like common sense. It's not very common, <laughs> and it won't be. So, I'm not sure how. But, I'm not sure how intelligent it'll be. But anyway. So what? What do you recommend that we do then, Chris? In terms of in terms of laws and regulations, that well, for instance, with regard to ATM machines, it, should we simply apply apply common sense? Or, well, look. This is to me. This is this is again another example of incrementalism. As right. we gain more experience and, and the more people want, <clears throat> want access, then we try to make improvements, um, whether it's in the equipment or, or in the laws. I mean, mm-hmm. all this stuff is incremental. I mean, look at Social Security retirement. It passed out in 1935, and then you get Medicare in, what, 1965, and then you get Medicaid, and then you get social, uh, SSDI, and then you get SSI. And then so, you know, all this, all this happens over time, is, and that's the way everything works. Hmm. So, uh, wait, wait, don't tell me. No, uh, I didn't what? say that. I said, I said you work on you work on stuff that you can work on mm-hmm. to fix the problem that you have right now, and don't worry about the problem that you're going to fix in ten years. So, uh, so how if, about the rapidity of change? How rapid things are changing each each go around. Uh, there's a point at which you can't react to a future or to a today problem because by the time it's resolved, it's no longer a problem. Paul mentioned accessible currency, for example. By the time we get accessible bank notes in the United States, uh, predictions are that we won't be using paper money at all. So well, there's a point where it's kind of a losing battle in that respect. But it also relates directly to what Pam Coffey was talking about. And I, and I raise this question with both of you, because the, the, the question that we have to face now is certainly one that's, that's being faced in the UK. And that is, are, have ATMs outlived their usefulness because of the cashless societies? And certainly that's that's what I'm talking about, this rapidity of change. By the time a change is acknowledged to be necessary and it's designed and it's rolled out, the service slash product that you wanted access to or needed access to is no longer in place. It's been replaced by something else. The other other thing I would like to suggest is uh, I'm going to go back to something that I think is fundamental to access to technology in general. And um, that is personal identifiers. Back 20 years ago, uh, a guy who now works for Amazon um, worked then for Adobe. And he came over to me and slipped a ring on my finger. And he wasn't proposing marriage. (laughs) <laughs> this ring had built into it, uh, uh, I'll call it a signet ring type thing. And I could go up to any of two or three devices in his demo booth and simply touch that ring to a place on each device. And it automatically knew my profile. 
so that it would accommodate by changing the language, changing the volume, changing the pitch, changing the whatever to my profile. Now, it didn't give up in that process. Uh, things like uh, credit card numbers and things like that. So it protected, you know, if somebody else picked up that ring and tried to use it, they'd get my my accessibility profile, but they would not get anything else. I am kind of coming to the opinion that what we need to do is to advocate for an, the ability to have a profile that would modify devices to accommodate my needs as a person with a disability, but it's going to require that devices communicate in a consistent manner, like a light bulb. You don't have to, um, there's a size of light bulb, yes, but whether, it, whether the screw mechanism turns clockwise or counterclockwise and what's the nature of the threading has been agreed upon standard for a long, long time. So now we need to come up with an agreed upon standard for interface with um, things like a profile indicator. Well, with a light bulb, though, for example, you have no idea what, how many watts it is if you're a blind person and, and no way that you can find out. Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, <laughs> Smart. It's his yes favorite no. phrase, everybody. Yes, it is. It is. Because... Um, if you have a smart bulb, you can. You can determine uh, even whether or not it's blown or not blown, worn out. Uh, you know, for me, it's always been if it's a lamp and it's got a switch at the base of the bulb, I've got to touch the bulb to see if it's getting warm or not, yep. know whether it's on or not, right? Um, yep. And not so easy with LED lights. They do not. They, they don't warm. get very warm. The temperature no, does change. No, and it takes change. longer, but it takes yes. longer for it to happen. You know, I might I, be past the need. But, but the you're, idea but you're here making, is you're making my point for me, though, which is yes. which, which is that technology is actually um, in 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 lots of respects um, solving many of the problems that blind people have by some of the changes that it's making. And, and if, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, clearly this is only, only marginally relevant to the ADA, but clearly we're, we're far better off technologically and in terms of our access to the world and in terms of the things we can do independently and privately and by ourselves than we have ever been in history. Yeah, and we shouldn't it is, forget it. it. Is. No, no, we're better off now than we've ever been. I do not disagree with that. However, however, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, and no. As as we move (laughs) forward now, how many books do you have access to, Paul? Not well, probably not as many as sighted people do. Now, over the course of your lifetime, uh, would you say the number of books you have access to? Has doubled, quadrupled, a thousandfold. What would you say? Probably a thousandfold, at least. Yep. And of during that same period of time, how many print documents has the public had access to? 
Has it uh, grown a, a, a million more than a times? Fold? Yeah, a million times what the thousand times was. Right. So what we have actually, while it's more than we've ever had, it's a lower percentage of the overall content we could have as a sighted person. So it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, the the tortoise is farther down the road than he's ever been before, but the rabbit's way the hell up there. Uh, so this is like I said, you know, the rapidity of change, all these things but, happening but faster I, and faster and faster and faster. So we talk about adaptive technology to adapt to what's there, and. The window for doing that is shrinking while we're talking. I think, I think though, that I would argue that the way that technology is evolving and the degree to which we are getting to the place where a larger and larger number of things are able to be done on devices that are smaller and smaller and more and more integrated suggests that as time goes on, access to a range of components that operate on that particular device, let's take, for instance, the iPhone, um, is, is going to fundamentally change the nature of things as it already has. So that I would suggest to you that that the gap will narrow the the more that people become dependent on a single device like an iPhone or or, or a, a Galaxy or one of the other major smartphones, um, and 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 I'm suggesting that down the road the gap will narrow simply because uh, individuals are going to want to have a single device that will essentially be handheld that will enable them to do all the things that they used to do with their computer. Yeah, phone number ending in 517. This is Mary Beth Metzger, and I just had a couple of quick comments. Hey, first, Mary Beth. First off, hi, how are you? I'm so tickled um, to hear your voice. I know, it's nice to hear yours, even though it's not in person, right? All, all these New York <laughs> people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the New York people, the New York and Massachusetts people could see each yeah. other. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, Lainey Feingold's book is on Bard. It's, it's, it's called Stru Structured Negotiation, a Winning Alternative to Lawsuits. It's DB89210 and BR22087. That is my, my first comment. Thank you for sharing that, Mary um, so Beth. We appreciate it. And I guess the other thing is, you know, just in, in, in regard to what you guys were just talking about, that, it, you know, maybe the technological gap is narrowing, but the, I think the harder um, uh, consideration is, you know, you can't legislate attitudes. And that, you know, there's a whole other arena, and I don't want to take this off onto that, but just, just as a side comment that unless we do that, no matter how, you know, unless attitudes change, no matter how technologically advanced we are, skilled we are, and whatever, the employment rate is still, for instance, going to still remain, you know, abysmally low for qualified blind people. So that's my, I, my little I totally agree with you. I have to say that I, really 
wonder when we see a PSA out there that shows a successful person with a disability, how many people have an aha moment and change their attitude. Right. Or do they just think, think oh, that's wonder person? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I always think about um, Eric Weimeyer, right? The guy that's Mm -hmm. climbed the tallest mountain on every continent. He was a computer student of mine when he was 14, I think it was. And I said to myself, it's, it's wonderful that he had that ambition and that he did it. But whenever a sighted person sees that, what are what kind of decisions are they making based on that one exposure to a blind person? And would I mean, they hire they... Eric to do anything? Yeah. I mean, that, here's the other thing: if you if yeah. you can say, "Oh, Eric is a great mountain climber," but if if I want to have um, uh, an administrator in my program, and he meets he he otherwise meets the um, the bona, bona fide um, uh, occupational qualifications. Um, would I hire him because I thought he he climbed Mount Everest? I don't know. I don't. I'm not so sure that no, that, no, I, that, I, that I, uh, carries over. I don't think it does. I I quite honestly have personally come to the conclusion that you change people's attitudes one at a time. If yeah, you do, Eric, you would say yes. He's got the drive that I'm looking for. Whether it's a sighted person or a blind person, he has the strength of, of creating a plan and following through on it. He's used to working on a team. After all, when you climb mountains, you do not do it alone, uh, no matter no. whether you're disabled or not. Uh, you know, those, those kind of things. But <laughs> Wait, it's a don't one, do it at all like me. It, if you know <laughs> or, yeah, it, then you would that, know that. Yep. But anyway, I, I guess, Brian, what you're actually doing um, is, uh, is developing the segue into next week's show. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> because uh, the second part of tonight's show, which is going to turn into next week's show, um, has to do with a lot of the questions that Brian and Mary Beth are talking about now. What 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 is a uh, uh, important about blindness? What what are the characteristics that we ought to be selling? Um, if if we shouldn't be selling the Eric Weinmeyers and 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 Brian's is 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 yes budding with regard to that too. Um, should we be selling getting everybody better, which is what sighted people think we ought to be doing? Should we be putting money into research that will that will create marginal amounts of vision because marginal amounts of vision are better than nothing? Those are some of the questions that we'll actually be looking at um, next week on Tuesday Topics. And uh, we look forward to having lots of you there. Uh, but I think the, the point that Mary Beth made is is a good one. So in in terms of making changes to the ADA, one of the things that we have to recognize is the first thing we have to do is to perhaps change some attitudes. Mr. Brian, would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, I, I have a sinking feeling in my gut that um, <laughs> that it is until we can convince the guy on the other side of the desk mm-hmm. that what we experience is different than he imagines 
because he's imagining himself suddenly in, in our situation. Yep. And, and how do you change a society's attitude about that? Is it something that's societal or is it something that's genetic? Well, I, I don't know. I hope it's societal rather than genetic. Um, you know, and, and, and clearly, if once we, once we get into the whole question of attitudes, we're not by any means the only minority that is, that is disadvantaged by attitudes that appear to be intransigent and unchanging. Um, there, there are all, all kinds of minorities. Um, Mary Beth would probably say, that there are loads of attitudes towards women um, that that are discriminatory, and there are piles of folks within ACB who would say that there are attitudes towards racial minorities that are certainly that. Um, and I think they're all correct. Um, but the question is, how how do you change it? You, you I, I, I'm not sure you can do it quickly, and I'm not sure you can ever completely change it. Um, so I have never been one who believes in integration. Instead, I'd like to talk about inclusion, but that's another whole topic. <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. And if you read the ACB lists right now, there is that discussion. There is. On. Absolutely. So how much time we got left? About two and a half minutes, Mr. Brian. Two and a half minutes. Okay. So concluding statement, Paul. You, what do you think about the ADA at this point? I think the ADA has done a lot of good for the disability community and, in fact, has done a lot of good for people who are blind as well. Um, I think that um, I, I think that it has forced a bunch of people who would otherwise not have looked at it to think about disabilities. And, and I think that one of the things that we found is there's probably at least in some parts of the community, much more openness to the ADA um, than, than there is closed-mindedness. Yes, there are people out there who resent the changes that they need to make um, uh, for people with disabilities, and this particularly applies to companies who don't want to alter their premises and don't want to create accessibility in the way that the ADA says they're supposed to. But that's also because a lot of people have found that the Americans with Disabilities Act is an entity that allows them um, to, in effect, take advantage of well-meaning individuals with no disabilities by raising lawsuits and encouraging people with disabilities to get involved in those lawsuits, which are frivolous and appropriate. So I think the ADA has, has made a huge difference. Your concluding statement in about 45 seconds, Brian. The ADA, in my opinion, has made life better for people with disabilities in the United States and by emulating some aspects of it for people around the world. I do think we had better uh, fasten our seatbelts because the ADA and its implementing regulations are going to be under severe attack by those who want as little regulation in their lives as possible. And those tend to be those who are more affluent, those who are more uh, 
established in terms of being opinion leaders through their efforts. So buckle up your seatbelt and be ready to advocate. We're going to need to be doing that for at least a generation. And we're running a little over time. So good night, everyone.